Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. In town, let me live then. In town, let me die. For in truth, I can't relish the country. Not I. If one must have a villa in summer to dwell, oh, give me the sweet shady side of Pall Mall. Charles Morris, The Contrast. So as usual, I've opened the front door and grabbed the first two likely-looking Londoners who happen to be out there. It does seem that everyone's got a story to tell. I think screaming does help as well. Ooh, yes, the Warnerman Walrus. They dug out bodies in 1887, 1873. What did he look like when he came out the other end of that? Knuckled. Got Sarah Palin coming. How do you feel about that? A little bit pathetic. <laughs> So we're in the parlour of Dr Johnson's house. One sees a story that is both of protests and of coming together. So they're banning people from bringing food to homeless. Yeah, they're banning soup runs. You know, we weren't buckled by the terrorism. A word in your eye, don't worry or push. A step in the gate is worth two in the bush. Which area of ridiculousness do we start on with that story? Why would you give a medal to a pigeon? Listen, you're all idiots. You know, it's my culture or anything. <laughs> No running, no throwing. This is pretty serious stuff. You engage with other people, you link across to other people. It's just huge. It's gigantic. <laughs> How many times have you done this so far? That depends. What, what do you think of that approach? I think that's terrible. London life is a really rich experience, and there's a lot that's good about living Boris here. Boris Johnson. He weighs as much as 40 school children. What a peculiar conversation. Hello, it's Friday, November the 2nd, 2012. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud, a podcast of news, views, and curiosities from London, UK. You can download the show free on iTunes, hook up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, or indeed tweet me at Londonist Sound. Well, we're here today in the East End. We're on the Bethnal Green Road at a venue called Rich Mix. And uh, it's a a mixture of all sorts of uh, interesting things, as the name suggests. They've got cinema screens, they've got theatres, they've got a wonderful cafe and uh, other performance areas. With me today are Neil Fraser. He grew up in the north of England, but has lived in the East End of London for 21 years in Westerham, Barking, Stratford, and now in Leytonstone with his family. Among other things, he He's worked at a betting shop, a mail-order book club, and currently teaches. And his first book is called Over the Border, The Other East End. With us, too, is a man who spends a lot of his time in phone boxes, as far as I can tell. He asks, what can the contents cover up and corrosion of these once essential features of British society tell us about the lives they've led, their current status and where they might end up. That's the subject of a new photo blog by Tristan Shaw. It's called phoneboxing.com, and the aim of it is to look at London's phone boxes through the medium of photography. Hello, fellas. Oh, yeah. Hi. I want to begin in the other East End. The reason I want to begin there is because we are really in one of the areas of, of the East End that has seen a huge amount of change in a very particular direction, this whole kind of shortage, Hoxton, Brick Lane thing that goes on here. On the way here, just walking down back streets to, to get here, I must have seen 20 vintage shops for which read secondhand clothes but vintage shops is clearly marketed towards a very particular sort of person the same sort of person i don't think inhabits the east end that you're writing about or or certainly uh, not so obviously no definitely not that 
may change or they're hoping it'll change but only in probably Stratford everybody I think knows by now that Stratford's um, the centre of a regeneration project but beyond Stratford there's probably very little maybe Leightonstone Walthamstow there's little pockets of people who might be interested um, but it's, I mean I remember coming to London when I first came to London Brick Lane was completely different so I've actually seen this grow and expand over the years maybe it'll go further east as things become more expensive I mean artist communities tend to keep getting shoved further and further away so we could see it go further east there is of course a lot of talk of going south or further south down to places like elephant and castle and deptford well their their gentrification is already well underway i I think tristan what's your impression of the east end do you get out east much um when i head out east it's normally at night to be honest so i have a completely different view probably to to a lot of people it's um it's it's the nightlife that i tend to to use it for you know shoreditch dalston hoxton those sort of areas um although i did go as far out as walthamstow recently um to uh, to pursue my uh, project. Okay, so we should uh, perhaps say a little bit about what those areas that we're talking about are like for somebody who's never been anywhere near them. Well, Leightonstone, um, it's easy for me to talk about that. That's where I live now. It's um, actually surprisingly surprisingly high number of people from Leightonstone that are well-known. David Bailey, David Beckham, Jonathan Ross, Alfred Hitchcock. It's just up the road from Stratford, and it's sort of on the edge of what I'd call London. Beyond that, you're getting towards Essex, I suppose. But historically, it's been an area where I don't know how you describe it. It's slightly sort of hippieish, bohemian sort of element there. I mean, when they did the um, the, the Link Road and smashed through various streets in Leightonstone, some people might remember back in the early nineties, people on top of towers and buildings and trees when they did the uh, is it the A12 Link Road. Walthamstow too has got pockets of that sort of bohemian sort of nature. I mean, small, small Wonder Records back in the 1970s in the punk era came from Walthamstow. Between there and, say, Bow and the traditional East End, there's just lots of pockets of historical, just working class areas and industry, places like East Ham and Plasto. They're completely different complexion, but it's historically a working class area. And before it was a working class area, it was basically fields and some grand houses a few hundred years ago. So. Yes, that always interests me that these enormous, beautiful places crop up in the most surprising places. Mile End, for example, some incredible, I think, Georgian buildings. They're very, very expensive indeed, right up alongside some fairly uh, dilapidated housing stock places that perhaps are are less desirable. Uh, Tristan, what part of town do you call home? Uh, at the moment, it's North London. So uh, oh, you're both North, because uh, you, you, you've been in uh, North London as well, haven't you? Uh, uh, well, I work in North London, Holloway Road, and, and you are Holloway Road as well. Really? <laughs> yes, we're neighbours. And <laughs> um, what about because uh, this project of yours, phone boxing, presumably takes you all around town. There's no shortage. Well, I'm assuming this, but very boldly, I'm assuming there are places that have phone boxes all around London. Indeed, yeah. You're, you're, you assume correctly. Yeah, it, it pretty much takes me all around London. So um, I, I aim to cov- cover north, south, east, west, um, you know, all zones. Um, give, give us the fundamental difference between an east end and a west end phone box, if you can. Well, it's, uh, it's interesting you raise that because uh, I've not had much luck in the east end. I've got to be honest. Um, around the Shoreditch area, there seems to be... Um, a lack of phone boxes for some reason the ones i've found is i maybe i've had not i've not had much luck not many interesting things in there unfortunately although just outside this building there is one which is absolutely covered in in all sorts of random paraphernalia graffiti and stickers which i will be snapping once we've finished yes you want to be careful with that one actually if if you if you're going to snap it make sure there are no people in shock because they won't take kindly the big bit of graffiti on the wall above it which was there for a long time which said for drug deals go in here and an arrow pointing to the phone box would probably give the, the clue away. Well, okay, the big problem, surely, with phone boxes is that they must be a disappearing uh, breed. We've all got mobiles. Uh, the the classic red ones um, are gradually disappearing, and BT are selling them off. Um, you find them all over the world now. You know, I think famously Tom Jones even bought one, um, and that's been shipped over his, his to his house in California, I think. But the the, the vast majority, there are, there are other companies that have installed phone boxes around the UK, around London. They are still there, and I think the, the primary reason is the advertising that they now um, display so you've got you know whether it's a film or an album or whatever the, I think the primary the primary source of income is that but you still find all manner of um, rubbish inside them so it's for, for me it's um, it's great that they're still there and no, no one, I, I've seen about two people use them to actually make calls but um, that, that doesn't bother me at all. That's fascinating so it actually doesn't matter whether somebody's making phone calls in them or not they're just prime locations for selling. 
Essentially, yeah. That has, I mean, the, I think the reason um, the reason they're still there is because of the revenue they generate from advertising. I don't know if you've come across this. I saw something probably online, and isn't there some people who set up a kind of a library exchange thing in a phone box where they leave books and yeah that's one of the examples i think where they've they've been kind of repurposed i think i've also found there's a, a community i don't know where it was they they put a defibrillator in there so there's all sorts of different uses these tend to be the the, the you know the classic red ones and no one's really interested in, in the kind of the, the more modern ugly glass-fronted ones but well a lot of people would think that people weren't interested in phone boxes uh, at all so let's not say anything as, as sweeping as that you must spot the public phones of other sorts of non non-red ones uh, on your travels uh, are you spotting fewer of those is this uh, is the the phenomenon of the mobile phone uh, jeopardizing those as well or uh, you'd think it would but i don't think it is um like i said i think because of the advertising element they're, they're still there i mean there's um even uh, where in the holloway road there's there's one stretch there are four phone boxes in the space of about 60 70 meters i mean it's it, actually it's a bit ridiculous but you know it's, it's, i say great for me but um uh, they're, they're, they're certainly not you know they're not don't seem to be disappearing what sort of thing are you on the lookout for when you go into a phone box i, I can barely say that with a straight face <laughs> Uh, anything out of the ordinary, really. Um, whether it's uh, graffiti, some sort of vandalism, damage, litter, a- anything that's, that shows some form of life. Um, any sort you, of really, you're looking for litter, so th- this is a sort of an archaeological thing as well. Uh, yeah, the litter's part of it, um, but also, you know, I, f- I found some. Uh, you know, I've got some great shots of, uh, unfortunately, you know, smashed windows, um, handsets ripped off, all, all sorts. Any, any sign of use, abuse, anything that's. You know, what I don't want is to just find a clean phone box that's in good working order that i've no interest in that uh, well i want to dig a little deeper though what why do you care <laughs> all of those things certainly exist within an, a, a phone box no no question about that but why do you care about um them? honestly I, I don't really care it just uh, it's it started it started off as a crazy idea which i've um which i've developed and uh, it's i am now where i am three months in yeah i, th- I think there'll probably come a point when I, i'll leave the phone boxes but you know for now it's going well so 90 posts so far what do you make of this now well, it's funny, really, because I, I, I walked down the Holloway Road as far as just just past just before Seven Sisters to work, and I did pass one there, and I suddenly it struck me we we don't even notice them anymore, and I suddenly noticed it, and I thought, when was the last time anybody actually went in there, apart from the cigarette sellers that used to habitat on Holloway Road, and it is quite interesting to think of these things that are there that we barely they become invisible almost we're not using them and i think it's quite an interesting idea actually i think i've actually slept in one more recently than i've made a call in one <laughs> yeah last time i slept in one was a long long time ago <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah those, those those new sort of half kiosk ones are no good at all for that no, a bit drafty yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's look at london and uh, see what's going on here in fact uh, b- before we uh, kick off i just want to remind you of something that was said on last week's show and this was in relation to fire stations being closed down here's what we said last week oh i know here's a good idea they've managed to get the number of fires down in london over the last few years they've managed to cut fires by 50 percent over the past decade and fatality rates have gone down by a third so what are they going to do helen arnie <laughs> Apparently, going to close seventeen fire stations. There we go. That's seventeen more for more harvesters for <laughs> for London. Yes, if you live in Acton, Bow, Belsize, Clapham, Clerkenwell, Downham, Islington, Kensington, Kingsland, Knightsbridge, Newcross, Peckham, Silvertown, Southwark, Westminster, Whitechapel, and/or Woolwich, there's potentially going to be an increased risk of fire because the London Fire and Emergency Planning Authority is looking to save over sixty-five million pounds in government-imposed. Okay, Tristan Shaw, what is the story this week? Okay, um, well, I've, I've kind of uh, I've cheated a bit here. I've, I've got two stories in one. Um, I hope that's okay. Um, there's a there's a piece about the uh, the police station closures around London. Rumours that police stations across London, Hornsey, Muswell Hill, St Anne's, Southwark, Clapham, South Norwood. These there are more as well where the local police station is going to be cut down as, uh, as a result of cuts. Boris says that no front counter will close unless an equivalent or better facility for public access has been identified. Quite where these um, these equivalents will go is yet to be seen. Yes, let's have a, a quick rundown of police stations due to go. We've got Hornsey, Maswell Hill, St Anne's, 
uh, in Haringey, Gypsy Hill, Dulwich and South Norwood in Lambeth and Southwark. Uh, front counter closures at Clapham, Cavendish Road, Gypsy Hill again. Hampstead Police Station is uh, looking to become a free school. This this is an awful lot. I mean, uh, the, the Met have been quoted to have to lose 500, they've got to make 500 million pounds um, savings. Um, and just yesterday we read that the uh, the New Scotland Yard building, the, the HQ is going to be moving. So uh, I think there are a lot of changes afoot. Whether this is going to affect the policing in general in London yet to be seen, uh, you, you'd have to think it would. It's bound to. Um, interesting thing about the police stations, uh, years ago in Stratford there used to be a police station on West Ham Lane. I don't even know if it's... I think that's probably closed down, but when I, I used to live about 200 yards from it and many years ago got locked out and decided that the only way to get in was to smash the glass door or the back door so I thought well I don't want the police coming around and, and bothering me it's my own house so I actually popped into the police station and knocked on the front desk and said by the way I'm just about to break into my own house just in case you're wondering and he said don't worry we don't bother coming to those calls anymore we just don't bother with them and I went okay <laughs> and just went back and proceeded to break into my own house um Yes, I, I've, I've done a similar thing. I was yeah. uh, I locked myself out and I had I had jimmied open a window, and this was on a main road. Nobody nobody came round. I felt a bit let down. It's just a nonchalant way. He says we don't bother with people phoning anymore. It's almost like they probably pulled the phone out and. Um, so I don't know what what they were doing in that police station. It's probably gone now. So no, no great losses, what you seem to be saying. Well, it is and it isn't. But it, I think it's it's been going on for a lot longer than than maybe this new story sort of indicates. Obviously, things are going into overdrive now with all the cuts and what have you. Related to this story is something that intrigued me the other day or the other week when there was various police part or stations or whatever whatever they're going to be now with the stages or in supermarkets were suggesting that people contact them to to almost vote for what sort of crimes they want dealing with and i was quite shocked i thought surely we want all crime to be dealt with so that was um, another indicator of just what's going wrong here yes this idea that they're going to have a couple of police officers uh, between three and five on a wednesday in your local supermarket who will be able to deal with with crime issues so uh, for, for example you can go along if you've been uh, sexually assaulted and you can go in the five assaults or less queue and you can go to the officer and in front of everybody in your local area uh, talk to them about that i find it curious how they i think in some respects it's it's obviously it's it's it makes sense in a way if they're trying to cut costs everyone has to go in the supermarket so it's it's a it's a community hub so so it, it could work, but just the idea of having a you know a police officer um, not far off from your till, so you go in for your groceries and then report a crime. Maybe maybe you get money or vouchers if you you know for every five crimes you commit. I, I don't know how it's going to work. Every, t- every crime you commit, you get a voucher. Oh, s- <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> I, what I do think um, is that you know supermarket theft is surely going to experience a massive drop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely in the interest of the supermarket, isn't it? Yeah. That's very interesting. One of the arguments for the fire station closures was that fires have gone down and therefore not so many fire stations are required. And of course, every government says crime is down because that's all they can say. So the argument might be we don't need so many police officers or uh, so many police stations because there's less crime. What can you say to that? I mean, the- well, it's not what you can say, it's what you can broadcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think basically that they've committed themselves to these cuts, so they're hardly going to say that anything else. They're going to say these sort of things. But crime gone down? Oh, I don't know. Reported crime might have gone down. I think a lot of people don't report crime because I think there's no point. I think it depends where you live as to whether you, what your perception of crime is. I mean, when I first moved to London, I was living in West Ham and there was a lot of crime there. It was a, it was a rough time. And there's times in the recent past where you've noticed it as being a, quite a, a, a rough time, but then it depends where you live. And we're certainly going to see more crime as, as the cuts bite because people are going to turn to crime. And I mean, it just seems obvious to me that that's going to happen. How they report that, how they use statistics is another matter, though. Yeah, the, with, the, with the stats on crime, I mean, the, the statistics for the last... 12 like the last rolling 12 months show that across london crime has dropped but you know try telling that try telling a resident of wandsworth where crime supposedly has increased by 10 percent that you know reducing the amount of police presence around there is 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 is, is, is going to help is a good thing it's unfortunately this is this is the way it's going um you just got to hope that that things won't, won't get out of control like obviously they did last last summer um if if we need to have fewer police, then we need, hopefully, if there's a way we can do more with less than great, but I, I don't see how it's going to happen. 
I'm a bit perplexed by the New Scotland Yard business. It's interesting, actually, because New Scotland Yard, uh, as the name suggests, is just the latest iteration of the police headquarters. They've had uh, original Scotland Yard and new improved Scotland Yard, uh, bacon flavour, they tried Scotland Yard, and now new... So this is not, uh, it's not a new thing that they're going to be moving. I'm, I was a bit confused, though, as to how really they're going to save money, because they still need to have a, a headquarters unless they're all uh, planning to go and bunch up in the corner at Starbucks and discuss crime there, which, given what we've said about supermarkets, is a possibility. Well, obviously, it's prime bit of real estate, to borrow the American phrase. I mean, no doubt that's they're selling it because they can get a lot of money for it, and wherever they go to is going to be cheaper. So. Oh, I see. They're going to be in a, in a, a unit in Slough or something like that. Probably, yeah. It, I think they're moving to the, to the embankment. The unit there supposedly holds five to 800, depending on who you believe, uh, and I think the, the HQ they're in now holds, I think, was it two... 2000 over 2000 so they'll be making supposedly they say 150 million off that sale and then uh, there'll be cuts and then other police uh, police will be spread out in in in, in different areas so it's a uh, yeah it's, it's it's a definite cost cutting exercise and then they're trying to recoup obviously some of the 500 million they they need to make the attentive ear will have noticed that you're across the figures and I, I wonder whether that has anything to do with your day job before you don the cloak and go phone boxing uh, nothing at all. No, pure coincidence. <laughs> what, what do you do? <laughs> uh, I'm a news editor in the UK trade and investment uh, section of the government. As far as I understand, it, you're sort of uh, aggregating, processing, drawing in information from around the globe and uh, processing it for the for the use of your department within the government. What do they make of you lurking around phone boxes? Uh, no, notice the, the particular language I use there. <laughs> I don't do so much lurking. I like to just get in and get out as quickly as possible. Not that many people know. A, a, a few select people know about it. I don't think it's in my interest to, uh, to to spread the word too far and wide across all our embassies that I, that I spend my time in phone boxes. It it just sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? Could we talk about the more outlandish instances of your craft? What, what sort of thing have you discovered that's uh, raised an eyebrow? Well, uh, I mean, to be honest, um, there's, there's lots of curious stuff, but within that, it, a lot of it's quite it's, it's it's quite predictable as well. You know, you, your condom wrappers, you, you found uh, people have defecated in there. Um, there's a bit. What a new a new photograph, then? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I have to. Well, one thing that that, uh, that was a bit strange. I was uh, I was in a phone box in Houston, around the Houston area, and uh, there were some uh, tart cards, as I believe they're called, or hooker ads, whatever you want to call them, flyers for prostitutes. And uh, but I, I don't focus on the kind of the typical photoshopped model with a different head or, or whatever. Um, I, I like the kind of the slightly out the ordinary ones. So the kind of the handwritten, the post-it notes. You know, very little, um, very little selling, very little marketing, and something nice and simple. And I found a load of them in this in this phone box. Uh, so I was in there for a good two or three minutes, snapping away. And then the phone started ringing, uh, which which did did kind of freak me out. Um, and uh, I had a look around, and I couldn't see anyone. And I thought, this is this. Uh, no, I, di- I didn't sign up for this. I, I don't, you know. I, so I, I quickly finished up and just got the hell out of there. Uh, Neil Fraser, I think you wanted him to answer the phone, didn't you? Yeah, it would have been interesting. That would. <laughs> Definitely, but um, making the excuses and leaving, I suppose, is a journalistic thing to do, yeah. <laughs> Not be part of the story, yeah. <laughs> One of the stories here of which East End uh, of London is most certainly a part is the story that we promised we're going to talk about last week, and this is our opportunity, income inequalities by wards within London boroughs. This is a new set of figures that has come out just recently, and what it shows, you can hope to find this on Londonist.com, of course, is the, the difference between the top and bottom ends of the income scale within the different boroughs and is measured it by ward. So there's a, a bar graph here which shows the percentage uh, or the number of wards, I should say, that are in the top 10% income-wise and the number that are in the bottom 5%. There's two things to think about when you're looking at these figures. One is um, the the boroughs that are the poorest, just looking at the, the chart, it's quite obvious. You've got Newham and Barkingham, Dagenham. And out of all the wards, they're all in in what you'd call the poverty zone. Um, and having lived in both of those boroughs, I can you know I can vouch for the fact that they're they're pretty deprived. But when you look at, I mean, actually, I actually looked at this with my students. Actually, I teach health and social care, and we looked at this um, because many of those are from boroughs like this. But it gets interesting when you look at some of the other the boroughs. Um, for example, Tower Hamlets. I think 
I looked at this, I think two of the wards in Tower Hamlets are actually two of the richest, and it's no surprises for guessing that they're obviously uh, centred around Canary Wharf, whereas the rest of Tower Hamlets is, is particularly deprived. In actual fact, it is the deprivation in Tower Hamlets is actually worse than anywhere in the country. Um, and another one that might surprise people is Islington as well. Islington, although there's no stats, there's nothing on this particular chart, Islington as well suffers from a lot of deprivation, and most people's perception of Islington is probably Upper Street, and Tony Blair famously lived there. Um, but there's an awful lot of people in Islington who are, who are very definitely living in you know deprivation. Presumably that would demand a slightly more nuanced graphic then to demonstrate that, because it's possible, of course, that the deprived people in that area fall uh, between 10% and 20% or something like that, and so don't feature on, the, on this extremes bar chart. Yeah, or another way of looking at that is to say that these charts can only tell you the top level, but the human side of it is, is goes much deeper. But um, I think it'd be fairly fairly um, easy to find data on Islington. I mean, it took me by surprise because, like anybody, you think Islington's you know it's quite a wealthy area. But when you sort of skirt around the edges of Upper Street, I mean, historically back in the seventies, Islington was that wasn't a, it wasn't a desirable area, um, and people went in and snapped up. Um, property in Islington when it was rock bottom uh, at the turn of the 60s and beginning of the 70s and now obviously you can see what, what's happened but a, a lot of the students I teach come from that area and, and it, it is, I actually asked them how they feel about living in an area where there's lots of people who've got lots of money and, and not good is a general consensus although there's, there's the other side that at least they've got something that is not completely run down so not, you know they don't say they wouldn't want to live there but it's it's kind of they're seeing something constantly they're not they're not going to get so it's it's like two kind of um, areas together but not really mixing you know and i think tower hamlets is is even worse i think tower hamlets you've got this kind of emerald city almost in the middle of tower hamlets just there and and uh, I don't know. It must be strange living outside that and just seeing that every day. Well, I think that's, for, for many centuries, I want to say, been the situation, hasn't it, with the city of London sitting there uh, with, with big gleaming buildings and uh, financial institutions and then right next to it, extreme poverty, um, certainly until recently, in exactly the area we are in now. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I mean, the city changes all the time, doesn't it? So this this area... Um, stretching here towards Bow, uh, this was in, in the late 19th century where a lot of the, the social reformers from from the people who, who were well off, um, like Annie Besant and William Morris and, and George Bernard Shaw and many other people came and highlighted the, the desperate poverty. Charles Booth did his poverty maps and so on. Um, but of course, anybody who, who knows this part of the East End now knows just how much that's changing. Um, 20 odd years ago when I first came here this area was quite run down you you wouldn't have chosen it to um, to buy a flat for example there was a lot of old warehouses and it was, it was all crumbling um, obviously it would have been a good idea to buy something then if you wanted to make some money because now it's, in, it's incredibly expensive around here um, so yeah I think it, that's the thing about interesting thing about London it's just constantly changing and shifting and changing all the time um, so I mean, I, I understand the, um, the the viewpoint, for instance, of, of your students. Um, it must be tough living in an area where they, like you say, they, they see they see people at a certain level. Maybe they, they think they'll never reach. Um, I personally think the way the way London's designed, actually, um, with this this just constant mix, is is um, is good. It's a good thing. You know, you look at cities like uh, Paris, Rio, where you've got these huge slums. You know, and and that's where, unfortunately, you know crime levels are high and, and, and real social problems start to come up. Whereas if you've got a city which is, is, is full of you know, your upper class, your lower class, all mixing together, I think ultimately that is what you want. You want a city that is, is, is um, you know, we've got people living side by side from all different uh, cultures and, and class levels. And, you know, that, that ultimately is... I think is a good thing, and that, that's what we need. Well, then, of course, when we look at this chart, then we see that perhaps that isn't happening as much as uh, we might like. Uh, Newham, Barking, Dagenham, uh, only represented on the negative side uh, on this graphic. Uh, meanwhile, Richmond upon Thames and Merton, which I was surprised to see here, and Wandsworth um, contain a large number of the uh, uh, the wards that are in the richest ten percent 
quite interesting. Um, I wanted to touch on something you mentioned before we started recording, Neil, about parks. Um, yeah, I mean, when I was um, doing research for my book, I came across this um, this recognition that a lot of the parks that were built in the Victorian time, we tend to sort of think of it as this grand gesture of the Victorians to sort of create this space and a very benevolent gesture. And, and in many cases, it probably was in the centre of London. But as you get further out, there was this idea that parks were created... Um, as a controlled space um, and you've got to remember around this time as you get to the edges of the city there was still lots of common land and common ground although much reduced because of the enclosure acts um, and the working classes would, would do what the working classes did to entertain themselves and, and, and the, the, the powers that be in the elite were, were quite nervous about this things like um, um, dog fighting and, and all sorts of gambling and, and various things so parks were created as a way of encouraging people to shift themselves into the parks where obviously it is a controlled space and um, between that and just the, the sheer urbanisation of areas that probably probably succeeded So what about very much on the patch described by your book, Stratford, Westfield, a policed in the sort of the privately policed sense area that feels like public space, but in fact is not. It's, it's private space. Is that a continuation of that same idea? Um, I think so. Um, the area that is now and will be the Olympic Park um, used to be very industrial the vast majority of it people wouldn't go on unless they were there and and that used to be sort of um, held by railways the the land the bottom end of that round by the Bowback rivers a lot of people used to go walking down and it wasn't pretty but it was it was untamed and wild space and you could go there and feel totally on your own now a lot of people might wonder why you would enjoy such a, a space as that but it would but what's been created in its place is a very manicured um, and park and and it is private there'll be security there w- without a doubt i've not actually been there myself my girlfriend took the kids to the paralympics and she said it was very bland and, and i'm sure that's because it's just been built how that pans out in the future i don't know and they are going to create the rest of stratford city but it is private land when the railways were nationalized it was public land to an extent and of course the railways became privatised and then they've sold off an awful lot of land that being one big famous chunk of it and the money's getting shipped out somewhere else but it's controlled stuff Tristan you're, you're looking as though you've been given food for thought enough to fill a banquet hall uh, I, I mean I th- I've actually been left a little bit hungry with the Olympic Park because I, I had a whistle stop bus tour of it before the Olympics kicked off and then never managed to get a ticket to get in while it was all, all happening so Is that because of this atrocious ticketing system? Um, no it's just laziness <laughs> <laughs> when you say couldn't then you just didn't yeah pretty much <laughs> i'm wondering what we can learn about sort of the history which is what we're, which it's what you purport to be doing to look at the the history and the changing times through phone boxes it's interesting to perhaps get some of these angles on common ground and public parks and social change and things like that and i'm saying this with a very serious straight face but what can we learn about ourselves through phone boxes well in 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 the last three months i could tell you that i think uh, i've learned that people can be a bit lazy um they they prefer to throw things in a phone box instead of in the litter bin um, surprises me because you've got to open it you've got to physically pull the door open well some people just like to smash the window and then they can you know it leaves a big hole they can throw things through um or they just slot it underneath I don't, I don't know I've never seen anyone in action that's I only kind of go up afterwards when they've they've done their business so to speak um, <laughs> sorry quite, quite literally <laughs> um, I mean I, I don't know it's it's the, the, what, what what fascinates me is is some of the messages people stick on there so you've got the kind of socio-political socio-economic message that people might stick up you know there was there was a, a, a stick on Edgeware Road someone had put up saying f- uh, free Syria which is you know is pretty understandable obviously the, these sort of political messages do crop up but then I found one in uh, in the Hampstead area. Someone had clearly just typed this out on their computer at home and printed out on, on a little label. It just said, you cannot be intelligent and smoke at the same time and decided to go and stick that in a phone box. So I'm not really sure what that what that says about people. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's, it's I mean, uh, uh, I don't know how many smokers would have gone into that phone box, read that, and then go, oh, you know what, that's, that's a good point. 
I think what I'm learning from what you're saying is that phone boxes are still being used, as perhaps they always have been, for communication, certainly, but not just the obvious one, the picking up the receiver and, and making a call. Yeah, I think that their use has changed completely. So while they're still standing there, um, the original use doesn't seem to be... No one seems to be making phone calls anymore. But yeah, people are still communicating just in slightly different ways. Um, so it's a storefront for prostitutes and uh, escorts and things like that. It's a forum for political messages and commercial messages. So broadcasting and advertising in, in those respects. What beautiful little hubs. Exactly. And, um, and long may they stay on our streets. We've been communicated with by you, listener. And uh, this is via the much more up-to-date means of Facebook. And we asked the question, as the seasons change, what are the best and worst things about London in the autumn? And everybody replied in exactly the same way. This has never happened before. Normally, uh, a wide variety of responses. Ansel Hutopia exemplifies the answer here. They say the best thing and worst thing, number one, weather. Number two, weather. A slightly more positive outlook from Christina Miodio Samaras, who says there is no worst thing about London in every single season. But again, sort of seeming to refer to the, the weather there. Uh, Jack Daniel Rogers, the leaves and the lack of streetlights at 6.30am, coupled with the odd startled fox. <laughs> Startled foxes are upsetting there to Mr. Rogers. Jonathan Wadman says the best thing is kicking up piles of leaves in the park. The worst thing is kicking up piles of leaves in the park and finding something nasty at the bottom. (laughs) (laughs) Neil and Tristan, what interests you here out of the selection that you can see? I'd have to agree with um, Amanda Adams. um, Going to work in the dark and, uh, and coming home from work in the dark so so much darkness that is something that well the clocks have just gone back so uh, I have to say that's not something I particularly love um, you know going to work in the dark and uh, well, if you get up early enough and then uh, and then coming home in the dark it's um, it's it's a bit depressing isn't it yeah Celine Haddad Christmas decorations going up as early as the beginning of November and, and even before that in actual fact um, some shops had them at the beginning of October there's just something not right about that next Christmas we'll start getting commercial um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but um, you, you don't want it too early, you don't want it before. I mean, if you're taking things like Halloween and, 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 and Guy Fawkes, I think you should have these things in the right order, really. Yeah, I c- completely agree. I think in America they've got a system there where uh, Thanksgiving Day is the day uh, after, after Thanksgiving Day, then the Christmas stuff starts happening. So you've got that clear point, that's when you begin things, not March. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a pretty good, uh, pr- pretty good line to draw. Um, uh, Titia Ketelar, uh, I'd have to agree with her. One of the bad things of autumn is uh, all the sneezing on the underground. Um, kind of hard to avoid, and um, yeah, and obviously lots of people sneezing on sneezing on the underground and putting their hands all over the rails, and then who knows, you know, you might pick up a cold after that, which isn't um, isn't a nice thought. Yes, we've all seen contagion. Please don't don't <laughs> sneeze into your hands and then wipe it all over. Go on here, Joe Roddish. Oh, Roddish, sorry. Uh, sorry, Joe. This might actually lead in a minute to some, some one of the other stories, but the continuation of people being so rude and untalkative. Well, that's, that's London, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know what she means on the tube or just London. I don't know why if it's just... We've got a revolutionary in our midst there, <laughs> I, I think. You, you mentioned that that leads on. Just quickly, before we move on to that story, I just want to let you know that you'll get a warm welcome from our sponsors, audible.co.uk. They are offering a free digital audiobook from their expansive catalogue of uh, over 60,000 digital audiobooks. There's a special 30-day free trial of the Audible service, and you can get your free audiobook that way. Your audiobook can be listened to on iPods, iPhones, iPads, compatible phones, that is, smartphones, and MP3 players. You can even burn the uh, audiobook to a CD and listen to it wherever you please. Your free audiobook is yours to keep, as are the others, whether you decide to cancel in your trial period or not. And all you need to do to get that free audiobook is to go to www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist and click through. Now, I I see a splash of purple on the shirts in the picture of this story. What's happening here, Neil Fraser? Um, Yeah, this is all about the um, London Ambassadors, which seems to be the official name for all those um, people who helped out at the Olympics and the Paralympics what Joe's comment on Facebook about people being so rude and during the Olympics I was um, going out and about with um, my, my partner and the kids and, and it was noticeable how um, the people who were helping out at the train stations and so on were 
it wasn't the people in the purple actually it was the people in orange I don't know if that makes any difference but those people it was nice they were friendly and, and there was a good atmosphere and, and that was quite unusual for London and, and I'm not the only person who's, who's, who's made that observation um, but what's, I'll, I'll just read it from, from the, the item here London ambassadors are back at St Pancras until 11th of November in a pilot scheme to welcome people getting off the Eurostar Around 175 ambassadors will be in Trafalgar Square tomorrow to help NFL fans come into London for the fan rally and at Wembley for the game on Sunday. Um, so it's a pilot scheme and it's, 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 it's trying to sort of keep this um, thing going, I guess, the feel-good factor from the Olympics. And it's interesting. I'm hoping that they might end up possibly being able to do um, more than just help people going to sports events but um, it's a good thing but I'd like to think there's people out there who might get the attention for helping out people who actually live in London who've got more problems than just getting to somewhere although I don't think in any way I'm, I'm criticising these people because I think it's great and I think it's good that they want to do this And Yes, very important that you say that this is certainly coming because these are volunteers of course this is certainly coming from a place of uh, goodwill and community yeah. spirit and so forth what distresses me a little bit Tristan sure is that this seems to be and privatisation isn't quite the right word, but it sort of touches on the theme or some of the themes that we've been working up today, I think. This is sort of privatisation of goodwill. Surely these sort of things, being nice to people who are new to the city, telling them how to get to places, this is the kind of stuff we should all be participating in as a matter of course, not getting a uniform to do it. Right, but I mean, most of us during the day are working, so I think you know this is this is this is a uh, I think this is this is. No, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting we take time oh. off to do it. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I think you know the volunteers, the the the, the, volu- the success of the volunteers during the Olympics was was you know was 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 clearly huge, and I think it was a great idea that was delivered really well. And I think for me, this has kind of been an unexpected legacy of the Olympics. And I think if we can still rally uh, this army of volunteers maybe they're students or, or um, pensioners or uh, just people with a bit of spare time and the unemployed perhaps um, it, you know if, if this means um, giving a better impression of London when people step off a plane or off the Eurostar or whatever there are helpful people around the city to um, direct tourists uh, give them help then then I, th- I think that's fantastic I mean I think it will give a really good impression of the city and if, if these people are happy to do it um, for nothing and can continue to do it then, then great um, I'm sure volunteering in the local boroughs this will still go on I don't think this will replace that but I think you know I haven't heard of this happening in other cities and I think I just think it's, 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 a, it's a really good idea and let's, let's run with it let's see, let's see how, how far we can go with it My neighbour uh, Lloyd he's a, he's, a, he's a great guy and he, he was a volunteer and his wife volunteered at the Olympics and he loved it and, and it was great for him to do and he really enjoyed it and it felt like you were doing something for a big event and it kind of had a purpose but when you get down to just the odd American football game and, and I don't know it just seems it's there's a shift and I just wonder whether they got such a lot of attention um, that maybe somebody thought afterwards that oh maybe we can do something with this because it's almost like a political sort of point scoring thing um, or whether that was already all along the idea that we would keep them not, like I said I'm not saying it's a bad thing but I'm just kind of curious as to I don't know. I mean, how long can you extend this for? How long? How many people have got the time, and will they feel the inclination to do it um, for something that's not as significant as the Olympics? You're conceptualising this entirely differently, the pair of you. I think Tristan, you're seeing this as a, a London-wide uh, helpful people popping up uh, from behind phone boxes, perhaps. Maybe, maybe the phone boxes could be stations for the volunteers. Meanwhile, Neil, I think you're seeing this as additional stewarding for select sporting events. That's what would seem to be from from the. I assume it's a press release. Whether you know if they're going to release any more information. I mean, in theory, this idea of people who are willingly giving up their time, which is crap. I've got nothing against that but um maybe we need a bit more information maybe it just seems a bit um, in the in the afterglow of the olympics i don't know how long this can can run for really i, th- I think I, th- I think it has the potential to to carry on for a while i think you know with the amount of people in london who who won't be perhaps busy on on a nine-to-five basis every day or even people who may want to volunteer at the time of the weekend i think there, there are that many people i think um 2000 odd have already you know indicated that they're happy to, to take part going forward I think you know, great. Uh, and until the goodwill runs out, let's let's go with it. I, I think personally, this I, th- I could see this being a permanent thing. I think it would be a really a really good thing for London. 
I think it's quite interesting when you start joining the dots here because you're talking about people who are unemployed. And it used to be, didn't it, that uh, if you wanted uh, a bit of information in the street or directions or you wanted to know what time it is, you ask a policeman. And we've just seen the police cuts. I, I like the thinking. Prisoners, actually prisoners have got a lot of time on their hands. Maybe we could have prisoners being the, uh, the volunteer force representing London. One big problem with that, though, isn't there? Yes, I think there might be, yes. <laughs> Well, well spotted there. Talking of people in orange uniforms, there's a wonderful picture in Londonist this week. We were trying to work out whether it is the Crossrail team on strike or whether, in fact, they are busy doing something. have got to be careful tonally how we say this. Uh, the first time I read it, it looked like it said a large boring machine was being loaded into the ground. But in fact, it's a large boring machine. Well, yes. I mean, th- this looks like a huge can of beans is being lowered into the ground. But um, I, I'm I'm told this is this is the machine that's going to be uh, this is going to be well the uh, the behemoth as it's described Elizabeth uh, and her her sister Victoria. This is what's going to tunnel towards Canary Wharf and uh, and then to Tower Hamlets. So uh, it's, it's pretty big when you look at it. And there's yeah, there are lots of people in orange suits. I wonder um, I wonder what they're doing. Admiring by the looks of it. What would you feel if you knew? That- that thing was going underneath your place of residence. As long as I got a good night's sleep, I don't think I'd really mind. I've got to say, it terrifies me. Yeah, so I got a friend I went to school with who used to work in tunnelling and he works on the Channel Tunnel and the Jubilee Line extension. And um, I knew before the news um, reports came out about when they nearly collapsed the Houses of Parliament. I mean, the news story said that they had to stop tunnelling because they were just below the Houses of Parliament. And I asked him a few years later, you know, how bad was that? And he says it was serious. It was... Um, it's not like they're going to immediately collapse and there's some guys there holding everything up but um, yeah accidents do happen I guess Um, he told me a few interesting stories about the Channel Tunnel as well but that doesn't seem to be quite as eventful I would like it if if the Houses of Parliament had fallen down and we came to you for comment and in your relaxed ways well these things do happen you know I've not really paid too much attention to Crossrail um, apart from the fact that when you come out of Tottenham Court Road you have to go on a big loop to get down Charing Cross Road uh, which is annoying and I imagine for the shops it's been disastrous Well some of them of course destroyed Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure how much use Cross Rail is going to be I'm sure it's going to be some use um, but to me I can get into town quite easily, I, I don't know but I'm sure I'm sure it's going to be good for some people. A couple of these big infrastructure projects, people are very lukewarm about that and the uh, 20 minutes saved on your regular trips to Birmingham. I'm, I'm travelling within London a lot, so it's not something I've, I've... I'm kind of indifferent either way, to be honest. I mean, I think it's just, so long as we're doing it um, you know, as cheaply, efficiently and, and greenly, if that's a word, as possible. Well, really, because this, this level of indifference generally and uh, you, your voice is merely added to a, a chorus of indifference, really. Surely we should be thinking seriously about whether these projects are actually necessary you'd assume people have done their homework with these things i mean if 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 there's if there's a demand for it which you presume there should be then then great if people if this is going to increase for instance business this is going to boost business for the uk um having high speed rail links and everything else then then great if it's going to end up turning a profit for the uk then then you know i think i'm all for it let me just have a think and see if i can remember any recent incidents where uh, civil servants have completely messed up the figures for train projects yeah i mean it's the, the birmingham one's interesting isn't it um I think with with these things, and I'm not an investigative journalist, so I can't do this, but I think if you follow the money, um, it'll certainly make a profit for some people. Whether it makes a profit for the country as a whole is, is a different matter, but do we, I agree with you. Why do you need to go to Birmingham 20 minutes sooner? I mean, I don't know. I mean, does it make that much difference? So, you know. Maybe we should just sever all ties with Birmingham. I've, I've never found them <laughs> useful at all. We're up against the clock, as we, as we always seem to be. So much to talk about. We should say something about what's going on here at Ridgemix this weekend as i mentioned at the outset we are at this multifaceted venue all sorts of different events and screenings and so forth going on here this weekend though there's some fantastic african films and music going on here we've got film africa 2012 celebrating african cinema uh, it's an event at rich mix from the first through to the 11th of november and you'll be pleased to hear that the prices are low six pound fifty if you're a student or in receipt of concessions nine pounds 
Games otherwise, and it's presented by the Royal African Society and SOAS and the University of London. It's uh, 10 days of 70 amazing African films, 35 leading filmmakers. There'll be Q&As and professional workshops as well, nine African music nights too. And to give you an example of one of those, Mashasha and Sam and the Zongzing All-Stars are going to be here, two of London's best up-and-coming African bands joining forces in what promises to be an electrifying double bill, bringing the soaring melodies and irresistible rhythms of Zimbabwe and Central Africa in a night guaranteed to make you dance. Do have a look at those. If you're interested in finding out more, get onto the Rich Mix website or uh, pop in Bethnal Green Road. Nice and easy to find. And uh, the website here, richmix.org.uk. We're out of time to talk about some of the stories we were hoping to touch on. Have a look at londonist.com for more information on London Pride's future. It looks as though it may have been saved. had uh, difficulties of the financial sort last year, but Boris Johnson has stepped in and is trying to find a non-profit organisation to run Pride and secure its future for the next five years. Very promising. Some interesting stuff here about Tooting Common. An artist called Jack Nimke has launched Common Knowledge, which is a new art project down there, and it's designed to help visitors to the common explore the space in a slightly different way it's tied in with the, the council parks and heritage teams uh, have a look at that and see what you think of that i'm, I'm hoping that we'll get a, a chance to talk about that in a, a future show but we've sort of touched on commons and maybe this is a new way to explore common land and finally we've got remembrance day coming up very soon you might be interested to know that the london remembers website is transcribing all the war memorials that they can before they get nicked for scrap metal. But they are transcribing every war memorial every day until the Friday before Remembrance Day when the entire list of 36,000 war dead from the Tower Hill monuments will be added. Well worth a look there. There's already 2,787 memorials around town which are included on the site. So if uh, that sort of thing is of interest to you, do have a look there. That's London Remembers. I think there's time really, to talk about blogs and books, and we're not going to use the phrase all good bookshops, because I think some evil bookshops may stock your book as well, Neil Fraser, you just don't know. Maybe some evil bookshops, yeah. It, it's available on, on the, uh, am I allowed to say it? Uh, Amazon? Um, You're allowed to say Amazon? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's classes Amazon. Um, yeah, you can get it on Amazon, you can get it in places like Foils and Waterstones. Um, it's called Over the Border. Oh, you're not allowed to say Foils. The other East End. Um, and, or it's available uh, directly from um, the publisher. Um, if you go to overtheborder.co, that's not a mistake. That's, um, he did want to try and go overtheborder.com and didn't realise until the last minute that had gone. So it's .co. I didn't even know that was a web um, um, address. Um, <clears throat> so you can buy it direct from the publisher as well. Apparently there's a Kindle version. I don't know if that's out yet or not. Overtheborder.co uh, for everything about the East End and the history of the East End. That well, a lot of it doesn't get talked about. It. It's all that stuff, Stratford and beyond. Yeah, it's uh, the border being the River Lee, so it's east of the River Lee. So it touches. There's a little bit about Bow, um, um, like the Match Girl Strife, for instance, and Annie Besant, and then it goes from from uh, Stratford through to um, the Docks area. A daily picture of something in a phone box at phoneboxing.com. I've been pointed at. Phoneboxing.com is right. I like to keep it nice and simple. So I have a street name, a postcode, and a photo every day. And, and that's pretty much it. And you can also find me on, on Twitter, at Phoneboxing. Well, uh, there'll, there'll be a little bit of a in, insight, interaction, um, a little bit of a kind of a, a look into, into the, the mind of a phone boxer. Yes, I know you're very keen to have people tell you about their uh, phone box experiences and uh, get interactive uh, about this whole thing. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm, if anyone has any, uh, any, any interesting shots, they've taken it in and around phone boxes and then yeah please send them my way and just finally on that subject i know there are phone box fetishists who are interested in i believe the k2 design of the phone box and some people are quite excited by the black phone boxes as opposed to the red phone boxes do you get involved in all those uh, extreme political uh, 
issues. <laughs> uh, I go, no, I go so far as to say that I think the K6 is my favourite. That that makes you sound really geeky, doesn't it? Yes, yes, it really does. <laughs> um, no, that, that I, I won't. I'm not, I don't join any convention societies or, or meetups, but um, but I, I, yeah, the, the K6 is pretty damn sexy. Go, go on, sell the K6. What's special about it? Oh, it's it's that classic red. It's, it's a classic red foam box. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a tough one between the K2 and the K6, but um, but um, yeah, my money's on the K6. Yeah, if if I ever get the uh, the money together from from a, a big book deal from the blog then maybe i'll buy myself one in fact i wanted to we heard a rumor that there are taller phone boxes somewhere uh somewhere like Hampstead or something like that so you the, the idea is that you can look up the hill and see the phone box more easily is there any truth in this do you know it's the first I've heard of it. Um, although I have, in my travels through Hampstead, there are a couple of the uh, the older models which which are a bit more roomy for for gents like you and I. But I've not no, I've not I've not heard of that. Right. Well, we, hopefully we set the wheels in motion, and uh, maybe you can report back to us on that. We've got time just for the historical quiz. As usual, there is uh, a, a lovely uh, imbalance going on here. Neil Fraser, historian of the East End, <laughs> for the historical quiz, and Tristan Shaw. Not an historian. <laughs> so this is five questions here. There's actually two points for the first question. Monday, the 29th of October, 1986. I want to know which road was opened and who opened it. Neil, I'll, I'll let you answer that one. Well, that's very gentlemanly. <laughs> um, M25, It was the M25, yeah, very good. Uh, who opened it? Ooh, I haven't got a clue who opened it. Um, well, I think Tory of the... politician, perhaps? Uh, what, sorry? Tory politician, maybe? Yes. Mail? It's <laughs> about 20 questions. Um, no. Hasseltine? Uh, Not Hasseltine. No. Thatcher? Thatcher, yes. One point each. Very good. Teamwork there. Tuesday, the 30th of October. In which year? A group known as the Fenian Dynamiters detonates a bomb on the Metropolitan Railway, injuring 62 people. I'm sure you'll remember it well. Which year, pre-20th century, are we looking for? Was that... At Aldersgate, now Barbican, I know there was an explosion, 18... I was in a transport museum the other day with the kids, I'm sure I read this. 1898, that's a guess. Not 1898. I'm pretty sure that was 1877. Uh, You're closest. It was 1883. Remarkable and uh, (laughs) unreasonable. (laughs) Wednesday, the 31st of October, 1971. To prove nothing much changes, 88 years later, an IRA bomb explodes on the 33rd floor of which London landmark? I can't remember what it called. It's in Canary Wharf. What was it called? Um, The the pair of them look like they've got chronic wind at this point. (laughs) (laughs) What was it called? Yes, that's exactly the question. What was it called? Uh, let's see if we can clue you up here. You've got to bear in mind this is 71, so a lot of Canary Wharf oh, right, so it's not, that one. It's not going to be there. So post office tower. It was the post office tower, yeah, 33rd floor of the post office tower. What have we got at the moment? It's two all, isn't it? Something like that. It's two all. I'll take that. Is it? Oh, hold on, is it not two all? <laughs> Just a minute. One all there, one for you for that. Yes, yeah, two all. That's fine. Cynical playing there from Tristan Shaw. <laughs> 1st of November 1848 which retailer opens its first bookstall at Euston Station Watstones? No W.H. Smith? It was W.H. Smith yes, well done so the best you can do now Tristan is draw London coach builder Lionel Lakin on the 2nd of November 1785 patents the first what? The only way you're going to get this is either by knowing the fact or guessing very randomly indeed 2nd of November, 1785, London coach builder Lionel Lakin patents the first what? Was it a sidecar of a motorbike? It was transport-related, but it was not, in 1785, a sidecar to a motorbike. <laughs> Gurning aplenty from Neil Fraser. Avagasco. It was, it was transport-related. You'll get a few guesses here. It's before trams, that, isn't it? Um... Tell me which kind of transport did exist in 1785. Horse-drawn carriages, trains... No, not trains. Not trains. No, no, horse-drawn no. carriages. Yep, neither of those. No? Not on land. Nothing to do with hot air balloons, is it? Not hot air balloons, no. <laughs> boats, says Neil Fraser. Yes, it was to do with boats. Steam engine... No, you've gone again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what would be a useful thing to have on a boat? 
didn't previously exist. Just imagine some of those. Sh- I don't know the, the Francis Drake's fleet or would something. Be, like. Would it be the motor? It was no. You've got to get away from this motorisation idea. <laughs> the way Nor was it the telex machine. <laughs> so someone's doing navigation. No, I think safety. Oh, the uh, oh, the the, the you know the big round thing that goes around your waist. Not the big round thing that goes around your waist. Is it the the plimsoll line to do with the way is it called the plimsoll line where there's a there's a line on the ship to see whether it's um if it goes below the water it's not safe that's a very very good answer but it's not right <laughs> with a lifeboat it was it was a uh, particular sort of lifeboat you you are so nearly the come on i gotta get the point for that <laughs> he had arms in the air in a victory pro- shirt over his head but it was oh, i'm gonna give you that of course i'm gonna give you that the, it was the unsinkable lifeboat in 1785 fantastic well neck and neck the whole way through uh, that took a firm nudge didn't it <laughs> it's uh, it's it's three all uh, there's going to be a tiebreaker question in that case what is the website of our host rich mix richmix.org.uk tristan sure you are our winner this week okay well thank you gentlemen for joining us thank you again to rich mix for hosting us if you're interested in uh, phoneboxing.com or uh, over the border the other east end by neil fraser uh, please rush out and purchase stroke log on to them uh, for this week though from the east end uh, that's all from us thanks for having me thank you it's been a pleasure here she stands and that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guests, Neil Fraser and Tristan Shaw. Thanks too to Bernie Barkley, Zoe Craig and Dave Haste. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. And I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. By waiting for the river's case Straining for the blueing waves calling from the shore